John chapter 20, the first 18 verses. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. She ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were both going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary! She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. If someone would ask me, as sometimes people do, why are you a Christian? Why are you a Christian? Because I did not grow up as a Christian, I became a Christian. Why are you a Christian? I could answer a number of ways. I could tell how I became a Christian, the influences, the way the Word of God became alive to me, what I discovered happening in my heart and mind. But another way I can answer is very, very simple. It's this. I believe in an historical fact. I believe that Jesus of Nazareth rose physically, bodily from the dead some 2,000 years ago. And because I believe that fact, that historical fact, I am compelled to be a Christian. Now, the flip side of that is true as well. If I did not believe that fact, if I did not believe that Jesus of Nazareth has risen from the dead, then I would not be a Christian. And I would not urge anyone else to be a Christian either. And so the way I'm putting this is making, as it's presented in the New Testament, the the resurrection, the linchpin of Christianity. Without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. 
And so when we come to this end of this story, we need to pay great attention to what's going on here because this is the, the experience of those who first encountered the empty tomb and then began to figure out what had happened to make that tomb empty. In the first ten verses, we have the empty tomb. We don't have the resurrection. We haven't seen that yet. All we have is an empty tomb. But then we get the explanation for the empty tomb tomb in verses 11 to 18. Now, we met Mary Magdalene last week, which is curious because that's the first time we met her in all of the, the, uh, the Gospel of John. And in fact, in all of the Gospels, she does not show up until the end. She shows up at the cross and she shows up at the resurrection, except in the case of Luke. Luke gives us a little bit of detail about Mary Magdalene in chapter 8, verse 2, which says that she was a woman of means. And she was apparently a woman of means because she was able, along with some other women, to support Jesus' ministry, financially speaking. And it also says that she was a woman out of whom seven demons had gone. Now, we assume that Jesus was the one who cast those seven demons out of her, but she was a supporter of Jesus' ministry, and she was one who had been possessed by demons but was released. But that's the only detail we have about her until we get to her at the cross and then at the resurrection. So, in terms of status, she's not the one we would expect to be there. She's not the one because we don't know much about her, She's not a high-status person, although she may have had some financial means. And she's quite a surprise, but she's the first one on the scene. Now, in the other Gospels, we have other accounts of other women as well, but all the Gospels point to the fact that the women were the first ones on the scene, and John focuses in on Mary Magdalene. Now, she goes to the scene very early, it says, while it was still dark, And she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Verse 1. It doesn't look like she did anything else. It doesn't look like she looked in, investigated. All she saw was that the, the door, the big stone at the door, was rolled away. And she immediately took off and ran back to the disciples. And she talked with two of them. One, Simon Peter. Peter, we know well. And this other mysterious disciple. The other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Now, we've met him before. We still don't have a name for this disciple. And in all of the gospel, we don't have a name for this disciple. We have to do some investigative work, and we'll do that in our last sermon in this series. But she announced to them her conjecture. Now, she didn't know this. She was just supposing this is what happened. And her conjecture is in verse 2. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Now, it may be an indication that, the, that John is taking into account that there are other women involved. She said, we don't know. So she uses we, the plural there, so she may be speaking for the other women, but focusing on Mary. But her idea is that somebody must have taken the body of Jesus away. Even though she hadn't gone in and looked, she just, she just con- conjectured that that is what happened. And she said... They did it. They did it. She doesn't say who did it, because she doesn't know who did it. But let's think about some possible options that we'll come back to evaluate later in the sermon. Who could have done it? If somebody took the body of Jesus, who are the possible culprits? Well, maybe grave robbers. 
because there were and are grave robbers. And remember that Jesus was buried in a rich man's tomb. And a rich man might be buried there, and he might be buried with some of his rich goods. So, maybe grave robbers. Another idea would be Jesus' opponents, because they wanted to make sure that there were no shenanigans, and so maybe they came and they took the body just to make sure it was secure. Or, perhaps it was some neutral party who just, for some reason, decided to open the tomb up and take the body away. Not an opponent, uh, not a robber, but just some neutral party. Or, perhaps Jesus' followers, because they would have had a vested interest in Jesus. Maybe it's they who took the body away. She doesn't say who, but these are some possibilities, and perhaps all of the possibilities. Now, Peter and the beloved disciple ran toward the tomb. The beloved disciple got there first, and he stooped and he looked in. And he saw the grave cloths lying there. Peter arrived a little bit later, or maybe a lot later, we don't know. He arrived later, and he wasn't waiting, and he just rushed into the tomb. And he saw a little bit more than the beloved disciple. He saw the grave cloths lying there, and he also saw the head cloth that was apparently neatly lying there, folded up, separate from the, the rest of the, the cloths. And it, it says here that the beloved disciple then went in and saw. And if you go through this text again, and I encourage you to do so later, read through this text again and find these verbs. Went or came or go, the same verb, sometimes went in, uh, and then the verb to see. And you'll find all through this text, went and see, came and saw. And this is, this is a fascinating combination of verbs, because if we go all the way back to chapter 1, all the way back to chapter 1 of John, and there were a couple of disciples of John the Baptist, and they heard John the Baptist point to Jesus and say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And they wanted to find out more about this one to whom John was pointing. And so the next day, they go and they say to Jesus, they say in chapter uh, 1, they say, where are you staying? And what does he say? What's his answer? Chapter 1, verse 39. Come, and you will see. Come, and you will see. And then we find that Nathaniel goes and he finds... I'm sorry, Philip. Philip goes and finds Nathaniel a few verses later. And Nathaniel is skeptical, and he says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Please. And what does Philip say? Come and see. And that's the invitation throughout this gospel. Come and see. Come and see. And then we get to chapter 20. There's an empty tomb. They went and they saw. They went and they saw. They went in and they saw. And now, John, well, we're calling him John. I'm getting ahead of myself. The beloved disciple, the beloved disciple completed the action. And he completed the purpose of coming and seeing. Look at verse 8. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in and he saw. You see, Peter went in and he saw. But the other disciple went in and saw. And then there's another verb. He went in and he saw and believed. 
He went in and saw and believed. And this is the invitation of the Gospel of John. Come and see. But not just out of idle curiosity. Come and see so that you might complete the action of coming, complete the action of seeing by believing. And this stands absolutely here. It doesn't say what he believed. It doesn't say in whom he believed. It just says he believed. But in the Gospel of John, that can mean only one thing at this stage, that he really, truly had faith in Jesus. We've seen throughout the Gospel, there are those who believe, but sort of, kind of, not really, and they fall away and they become Jesus' opponents. But now we're getting to the end. And when it says, in absolute terms, that the beloved disciple came and saw and believed, he had genuine faith. But I want you to notice in verse 9, right after it says he believed, it says, For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. You remember all through the Gospel of John, we have seen no faith. We have seen sign faith. Faith based on signs, on seeing signs. And then we've seen the kind of faith to which Jesus is calling us, and that's faith in his word. So, the beloved disciple believed. He had true faith, but it was still sign faith because they had not yet put two and two together and believed the Scripture that said that he must rise from the dead. But we have to give him a great deal of credit here because he believed without having seen Jesus yet. He believed only having seen what? An empty tomb and the grave cloths Lying there, he believed. Now, after that, there's something of an anticlimax in verse 10. It says, then the disciples went back to their homes. I'm not sure that it was clear what else they should do, but Mary Magdalene is back at the tomb. We don't know when she showed up, but apparently she ran back to the tomb as well. And she, in contrast to those two disciples... She stayed there. And as she stayed there, now she finally got up the courage to look into the tomb. And she was weeping, and she stooped, as they had done, to look into the tomb. And she saw more than they did. She probably would have seen the the grave cloths. But she also saw two angels. And in each of the Gospel accounts, there are men, angels... And it's uh, described different ways, but these are obviously messengers that are sent from God to announce what had happened. And they ask her a question. She saw the two angels, one at the head, one at the feet of where Jesus had been lying. And they asked her a question. They said, woman, why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? Now, that question was not to elicit information. They were not saying, we don't know why you're weeping, and we want some information. We've just encountered a woman who's weeping, and we want to know why she's weeping. They weren't not asking for information. They were gently challenging her. And we do that as well with questions, don't we? When we find somebody doing something that we think is illogical or is the opposite of what that person should be doing, we ask the question, why are you doing that? We're not asking for information. We're not asking for the cause of why that person is doing it. We're challenging and say, why are you doing that? Because that's not what you should be doing. So here, they're saying, why are you weeping? And she doesn't get their drift. And she answers them, literally, 
she misses their point, and she explains. She gives them the explanation that they weren't asking for. In verse 14, or verse 13, she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And then for some reason, you know how that works when all of a sudden something catches your eye, just in the corner of your eye? Maybe some movement, maybe a shadow caught her eye and she she turned around and she saw a man standing there. And she didn't know who he was, she didn't recognize him. Maybe because of the lighting, we don't know why. Maybe he wasn't recognizable to her. That happened in other cases in the Gospel of Luke. And this man asked her the same question. Exactly the same question. Woman, why are you weeping? Once again, not eliciting, trying to get information, but but pointing her to the fact that she didn't have to be weeping. She didn't have a cause for weeping. And then he pointed her gently to the answer. He said, whom are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? Knowing that she was seeking someone. And then she was supposing him to be the gardener. Do you remember this is a tomb that's in a garden? So she thought maybe this is the gardener. And she said, sir... If you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. She is insistent that somebody has taken the body away. And then Jesus said to her, Mary. And he said it in a way that caught her attention. And I don't know how significant this is, but when Mary shows up, the word Mary shows up up to this point, it's it's a Hellenized version of Mary. And then when it comes to Jesus speaking to her, it's the Aramaic version. In other words, he's using the word that he always used when he spoke to her. He's using the familiar Mary, not the Hellenized version, but the one that he had always called her. And immediately when he heard, when she heard her name spoken as he had always spoken it, she said an unusual Aramaic word, Rabboni. Something like rabbi, but it's, it's, it's not usual, it's not common, but John helps us out, those of us who don't speak Aramaic, and that means teacher. And then we have some of the more curious interaction in the Gospel of John. Jesus said to her, verse 17, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and to your God. Now, the way he said, do not cling to me, there are a couple of different ways in Greek to make a prohibition. And one way is to say, don't start doing this. And the other way is to say, stop doing this. And it's a different construction. And so the way he says this here is the way that usually means stop doing this. Stop doing this. Now we have no indication here in John that she was clinging to him. But if we go to Matthew chapter 28 verse 9, it says that the, woman, the women latched onto his feet. And so we are to suppose that that's what was happening. Immediately she grabbed onto him. And he says to her, and this, is, this indicates, this translation indicates the stop doing idea Because he says, do not cling to me. Stop clinging to me. And then he gives the explanation for why she shouldn't cling to him. And this is the curious part, because it's not entirely clear why she should not keep clinging to him. His explanation is, 
For I have not yet ascended to the Father. How does that work? Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Well, that can mean a number of different things. How should we explain that? It could mean that he's saying to her, I'm not leaving quite yet, so you don't have to try to cling to me, because you'll keep seeing me for a little while longer. So, you, you don't have to hold on to me now. I'm not going to disappear again quite yet. It could be that. Or he could be saying, don't try to keep me here. Don't cling on to me to try to keep me here, because I have not yet ascended, but I'm going to ascend to the Father. And therefore, don't try to keep things or return things to the way they were before. There has been a definitive change in history. And there has been a definitive change in redemptive history. And there's been a definitive change in the relationship that Jesus bears to everyone and everything because He has died and He has risen again. And He is going to ascend to the Father. I want you to notice one other thing that in describing, well, two other things. In describing to whom He's going, Jesus says, I am returning to my Father and to your Father and to my God and to your God. Now, He could have just said, to our God and to our Father. But the way He said it makes something of a distinction between Himself and His disciples well, in this case, Mary, to, well, no, this is a message actually to all of the disciples, to my God and to your God, to my Father and to your Father. And so there's something of a distinction there, because the relationship that Jesus has with His Father is not exactly the same as the relationship that we have with God the Father. And yet, at the same time, He is saying, my God, who is also your God, and my Father, who is also your Father. So he may be making a, a subtle distinction between the fact that he is the, the eternal God and he is the eternal Son of God. That's the relationship that he has to the Father. And yet, at the same time, he is bringing us into that sort of relationship by saying, my God, eternal God, my Father, eternal Father, is now also your God. And my Father is now also your Father. And I want you to notice one other thing in the Gospel of John. We find something of a, a mashup of, of events that we tend to separate. We tend to think about the crucifixion, which is the humiliation of Jesus, the resurrection, and then the ascension. But in John, these things are all kind of melded together and they are all part of Jesus' exaltation. All part of His being lifted up. Because here, He announces His ascension during His resurrection. And when He announces His crucifixion, He announces His going up, His exaltation. So in some ways in John, the crucifixion is an ascension, the resurrection is an ascension, and, of course, the ascension of Jesus is an ascension as well. In, in John's terms, it's all going up. He's lifted up on the cross, He's lifted up out of the grave, and He's lifted up to the right hand of His Father. Now that's the, that's the account as we have it. Let's think about a bit about the importance of this account. 
and the importance of this, this statement that has been part of Christianity from the beginning, that Jesus rose from the dead. And as I said at the beginning, if he did not, then I would not want to be a Christian. I wouldn't be a Christian. And I wouldn't want anyone else to be a Christian. And that's not a personal opinion on my part. That's what the Bible presents. As far back as Paul, we have the statement that if Christ did not rise from the dead, then Christianity is worthless. He said in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ did not rise from the dead, then our believing, our faith is in vain. He said, if Christ did not rise from the dead, then we are false witnesses because we are lying about God by saying that He raised Christ from the dead when He really didn't, if He didn't rise. And if, if Christ has not ra- been risen from the dead, been raised from the dead, then we are still in our sins. There is no forgiveness of sins for us or for anybody else. So the stakes are very, very high here. And Paul was not mincing any words. He was not saying, well, you can believe this if you like, but but if you don't, then you can still have Christianity. No, this is the linchpin of Christianity. Because without the resurrection, Jesus died just like everyone else. Just like any other religious leader, He died. But the difference is, He rose from the dead. And if that is true, then Christianity is true. If that is not true, then Christianity is not true. Now, because of this fact, and because we freely admit this as Christians, if people want to disprove Christianity, what do they attack? All they have to do is attack the resurrection and try to disprove the resurrection. And if you can disprove the resurrection, then you're done with Christianity. So it's an easy point to attack because it's only one point. But it's not easy, easily assailable, as we'll see. Some people, and this is... This is very common. If you've been to university, you found this. Some people simply state, resurrections don't happen. Resurrections don't happen, and therefore, Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. Why? Because we all know that resurrections don't happen. Now, this is an example of a logical fallacy. The logical fallacy is called begging the question. Since I've come back to the States, I've heard people use the expression, beg the question, to mean raise the question. But in in logic, begging the question is a fallacy which is to assume that which you are trying to prove. So it's, it's not proving anything. It's just assuming what you're trying to prove. And if you come out and say, well, Jesus didn't rise from the dead because resurrections don't happen, you haven't proved anything. All you've done is assume what you're trying to prove. Likewise, people will simply dismiss the gospel records and say, well, we, we know this is untrue. And so... Uh, Jesus didn't rise from the dead because we know these accounts are untrue. But that, once again, is a logical fallacy. That's assuming what you're trying to prove. You haven't done any work yet. It's a sleight of hand. You're simply trying to make it obvious or declare that it's obvious to everyone that this is untrue. But these are both logical fallacies. Well, somebody who does a little more work might come to the conclusion that Mary conjectured. And that is that somebody had come along and removed the body of Jesus. Now, we had four candidates. Let's think about those four candidates at the beginning. What about the grave robbers? A rich man's tomb. Freshly laid in there. Maybe easier to get to. Not all grown over with moss yet or something. And so, let's see what's in there. Okay, let's say grave robbers. What would grave robbers have done when they got to the tomb and found 
a body just wrapped in cloths and no goods to steal. Well, they might have rummaged through the body, they might have unwrapped it, but one thing they would not have done is taken the body. That's not what they're after. They maybe, maybe, just for their effort, might have taken the linen cloths, maybe, but they would have been bloodied and so on. That's unlikely. But, But if they would have taken anything, they would have taken what was left there and left what was gone. So I think we can eliminate the grave robbers. What about Jesus' opponents? Jesus' opponents came and took the body away. Well, that makes even less sense because when the rumors started getting out about Jesus rising from the dead, they would have had a very, very easy answer to that. They would have just said, we took the body and we placed it here. Come and take a look at it. You can see for yourselves. But they didn't do that. They had no body to produce. So we can eliminate Jesus' opponents. Well, what about, let's just say, some neutral party? Well, the problem with the neutral party, among others, is that a neutral party would have no reason to be going in there in the first place. You don't just stumble on graves and say, oh, I think I'll go in and see what's happening in there. Um, And even if somebody had made some sort of a colossal mistake and opened up a tomb and moved the body, as soon as the hubbub started uh, about this man rising from the dead, the, the man could have easily said, well, excuse me, I made a big mistake, moved a body by mistake, didn't mean to, but here it is. It's not where it was, and here it is. Okay, very, very uh, unlikely scenario. And the last scenario, which actually was a scenario that was invented at the moment, in the Gospel of Matthew we find that one, Jesus' followers. Now, they had a vested interest, didn't they? They're the, they're the most likely suspects to come and take the body. But there are two problems with that. One is, they were not expecting a resurrection. So you don't fake something that you are not even thinking about. They were as surprised as everyone else in Jesus' resurrection. They were not planning on it. They weren't expecting it. And so they would not have faked something that had not even entered into their mind. But let's say, had it entered into their, in, entered into their mind, and had they removed the body to fake the resurrection and begin to pro- proclaim that Jesus had risen from the dead, they wouldn't have stuck to their story. Why not? Because they died for that story. And as soon as the persecution, as soon as the imprisonments, as soon as the beatings began to take place, one of them, one of them, or all of them at once, would have said, we, we made this up, folks. Here, the body's over here. Go take a look. Leave us alone. But for all of them to go to their graves, dying, dying terrible deaths, and doing so because they believe that Jesus rose from the dead, it's impossible to believe that they had faked the resurrection. So we've eliminated all the possibilities, and we're left with one stubborn fact And the stubborn fact is this. The grave was empty that morning. The tomb was empty that morning. And no one, no one has ever produced the body of Jesus. And no one has even made a credible claim that they had done so. And that's remarkable. Because all you have to do is take this one fact out and Christianity is gone And that's the one stubborn fact that no one has been able to belie. So, Mary looked for Jesus' dead body and she wept 
when she couldn't find it. And it's a good thing she couldn't. Because if she had, then not only she, but everyone else would have a lot to weep about. One author put it this way, Lenski, Indeed, why does she weep? When we should all have had cause to weep to all eternity, if what she had wept for had been given to her, the dead body of her Lord. Indeed, good question, angels. Woman, why do you weep? Jesus, woman, why do you weep? If she had received what she wept for, then she really would have had cause to weep. And so would we. Now, she couldn't have received what she wept for because it didn't exist. There was no dead body of Jesus. They couldn't have shown her the dead body of Jesus because there was no dead body of Jesus anymore because Jesus, on that first day of the week, rose from the dead and lives forevermore. And so here the invitation, the invitation which by God's grace I accepted some decades ago. Here the invitation, it's this. Come and see and believe. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You that Mary never found what she was looking for. We thank You that she never found the dead body of Jesus because there was no dead body of Jesus. And we thank You for that stubborn fact that has resisted all attempts throughout the ages to diminish it, to explain it away, to deny it. That stubborn fact that the tomb was empty and no one ever produced the body of Jesus. And no one could, and no one has, and no one will, because He's risen from the dead. And Lord, I pray for all of us who are hearing this message today, that we would come and see and hear and believe in Jesus. And so receive the life that He rose to give us. And we pray in His name. Amen.